Hi and welcome to the highly anticipated first episode of Season 2 of Up and Away, the Australian Aviation Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Frangu. Thanks to everyone for your patience leading up to this. The final episode of Season 1 was back in December 2020, so I know everyone's been hanging out for the next episode this entire time. I've had a lot of messages from people keen to get stuck into Season 2, and I can finally announce it's now here. An update on me, since we last caught up I've logged over 17 hours flying time as a student pilot, including two full hours solo. Going solo for the first time was such a crazy experience, but I won't get into that too much now, I've got a special episode for that soon. Without any further delay, this week I'm joined by Henry Ellis. Henry operates a very awesome seaplane company down at the waterfront in Hobart called Above and Beyond Tasmania, where he offers charters, joy flights and day trips in his de Havilland Beaver. And when Henry isn't flying the Beaver, he's also a Boeing 737 pilot with Virgin Australia. I was lucky enough to go visit Henry in Hobart over Christmas and go for a ride with him, which happened to be my first ever trip in a seaplane. It was unreal. We then recorded this episode a few months ago when I was back in Melbourne, but I'm finally glad to have the chance to share it with all you now. Thanks again for all your patience and support between these seasons. It means a lot to hear from you all during this time and to support me on my aviation journey too. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your preferred podcast platform, whether that be on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Up and Away Cast. But for now, fasten your seatbelt and let's go. Hey Henry, welcome to Up and Away. Thanks Chris, thanks for having me. No worries. Uh, you're the first guest for the year, so welcome. <laughs> yeah, well let's hope 2021 is better than 2020. Exactly. Yeah. I keep saying that, that hopefully aviation will be better off this year as well. And just in general, because it's yeah, been absolutely. a pretty wild year. So it sure has. Yeah. Yeah. I just realized that um, in like two weeks, a year ago, I had my last flying lesson. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. So time to get back in there. I think so. And I actually just booked my next one in today. So oh, great. that's exciting. Yeah. Good yeah. to hear. So I'm like, it's about time. I don't know where the year's gone. It's just been insane. So hopefully it's much more back to normal this year yeah let's hope so i thought i would start by asking when did your aviation journey start and what inspired you to get into aviation um my aviation journey started when i was um a very small child i think i can't remember not wanting to fly but i think the key to it was when my parents took me to europe to visit some rallies uh, when i was four uh, back in the day you could go up to the cockpit and i just um it's probably one of my earliest memories being up there in the uh, in the cockpit and seeing all the, the lights and the bells and the whistles and yeah it was, it was pretty cool. Uh, I thought it was uh, I, don't, I don't think I ever let go of that and here we are today. Yeah, I think that's a huge uh, inspiration for a lot of people. The cockpit visit. It sure is, and it's a real shame we can't do it uh, airborne these days. Um, mm. We still like to show the the cockpit to especially young kids and stuff who are interested on the on the ground once we land we get a few requests um for that but um it's a real shame we can't do it you know airborne anymore yeah i used to um fly to visit my grandparents in brisbane and some of my early aviation memories were being in the cockpit and mm. and i think for years and years and years i was like i want to be a pilot i want to be a pilot i want to be a pilot so yeah oh totally i reckon so many pilots would have um, been inspired by, by cockpit visits for sure. Totally. So 
let's talk about your career path in aviation so far. You've had a really varied and diverse career. Um, what have you done so far? Maybe you can have a bit of a chronological overview. Sure. I, I was, um, I've been pretty lucky in, in my career, really. I started here in, in Tassie, learned to fly uh, at a company that's no longer around called Taz Air. And, um, yeah, I got, you know, went through the, the stages of, of flying solo, um, private license and commercial license all around the ages you can do it. I think I had my commercial at 19 and then um, it was just sort of luck of the draw as I got my commercial, a couple of people left, so there was an opening and um, I was, yeah, lucky enough to sort of jag a spot just flying um, bushwalkers around on a casual basis, not not uh, not, per- not full-time or anything. So, um, yeah, I sort of started flying down the southwest of Tassie to Cox's Bight Beach in Malaluka. That was my first um, gig, just in 172s and 206s. But um, that was I was pretty lucky to, to get that job, I think. It was, um, I, I suppose, getting your first job is your hardest job. Yeah. And I was, yeah, really lucky to just step straight out of the commercial test into a into a uniform and into a, into a job straight away. So um, I stayed there for quite some time and worked my way up through the, the ranks and ended up doing RPT on the chieftains and era commanders um, and did, did an instructor rating as well. So um, it was actually a really fun time. You know, one minute you're, you're flying a you know an Agnitio student in 152 and then you're jumping into the 206 and flying some bushwalkers down to the southwest of Tassie and landing on a beach, coming back, and then you you might jump into a chieftain and and fly up to Lonnie and back or something, and it was all in a day's work. It was such a varied and um, a great uh, you know a great variety of flying all in the in the one day. It was it's a good time. So I did that for sort of four or four or five years, and then um, ended up going to a company called Pele in Brisbane, and I was flying a metro out of there doing night freight. Uh, up and down the coast, and we went up as far as PNG, um, and then Moresby, and and down to Melbourne. So it was sort of a pretty wide, wide range um, of of weather and different airports, and all at night time. No autopilot, um, two crew, but um, that was yeah, it was a bit different to what I was used to, I suppose. And then they had some jets as well. They had west winds, so I was lucky enough to to jump across to the west wind at at some point. Yeah, wow. And start doing freight and, and medivac as well, medivac flights. Um, yeah, all over sort of the Pacific region, really. Um, down the Australia as well, obviously, and um, up as far as I think the first where you went to Singapore. Um, so it was sort of a good introduction, I suppose, to well, to jets and international ops as well. And then yeah. from there, yeah, from there to Virgin. So I was, yeah, I say, you say a varied career, I, I suppose. It's not. I really only worked for um, three companies, um, but the variation comes in the different kind of flying I did, I suppose. But um, after I started at Virgin, it was where I, I sort of um, did that for eight, eight or nine years, really, and I'm still doing it now. But you know, we, I missed the, the variation in flying, and so that's in, that inspired us to, or inspired me to start the um, the company uh, above and beyond. So, and that's that's a completely different. Um, variation, I suppose, in yeah, aviation as well. <laughs> so, yeah, I think variety is the spice of life, isn't it? Totally, yeah. And it, yeah, it definitely means you don't get bored or, you know. No, that's right. Totally. Yeah. Um, yeah, so early on, did you have this goal, like when you're working towards CPL, where you're like, oh, 
did you have this ultimate goal of where you wanted to see yourself? Like, was it the airlines or something, or was it flying jets doing freight? Or no, not not really. I think I was just so keen on flying at that stage. I didn't really care what I was flying as long as it, you know, it was I was enjoying it. I was happy, and um, I know at one stage I really wanted to to be an ag pilot, but um, I don't really know why. <laughs> I didn't go down that path, but it just I think it, I suppose the the airline. Um, as you get a little bit older, financial situation becomes a more of a priority, I suppose. And it, and I think mm, after yeah. ten years in in the industry, earning a GA wage, th- that was a pretty attractive route. And the more um, complex aircraft you fly, the more you want to do it, I suppose, as well. So you know, getting on the jet on the West Wind for the first time was, oh, I loved that. You know, it was really really interesting. And you know, having this thing called a weather radar, you know what. How's that work? Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then I think uh, that the complexity of the, the seven three was really appealing, as well as the security of well, I, I, I say that almost with tongue in cheek now, looking back on the last year. But at the time, the security of an airline job was was attractive. So, mm. Mm. yeah, I think um, something like last year is definitely an indication that you know nothing's particularly secure. So it's maybe about enjoying what you're doing more than anything because, that's right yeah you know who knows what's going to happen in the future totally who knows what's around the corner mm. yeah so yeah with um Palaya, um they're a pretty big company hey they do lots of stuff around the country and they do, they do. aeromedical here in um in melbourne yeah i think they use the king ears now don't they yeah, yeah yeah um simon burke who was on episode i'm forgetting episode numbers yeah now. I, I heard I, I did listen to that one yeah if yeah, he was flying Palaya, so um, mm. he's currently flying King Airs with Palaya doing everything. Yeah, right. So. Well, they, they yeah they didn't have King Airs when I was there. It was either the West Wind or the or the Metro there, and they had Saabs as well for freight um, and a Brasilia. But um, yeah, just the West Winds and the and the Metros were, were my part of Palaya. But yeah, no, it's a it's um it's great flying. Aeromed flying is fantastic. You, you know, you sort of it's always last minute. Um, stuff you, you're generally on standby, and then you get a call up, and it's always a surprise where you're off to and who you're picking up. Or yeah, so I really enjoyed that. And the international ops and stuff you were doing with them was that more the freight side of things? Uh, no, it was all all the um, international ops was all aeromed stuff. Oh, um, wow. so going and picking up, you know, um, Aussies that had become sick or injured overseas and were coming home for, for treatment, um, we'd go and get them and you'd always take a doctor and a nurse with us. Um, and then, yeah, you usually take them to one of the major capital cities where there's a big hospital and where they go in an ambulance. Do you normally go to the closest hospital or the, the sort of more convenient? Um, it depends. It depends what what's wrong with them. Um, some hospitals don't have, like, for example, Darwin, when we, we had a lot of, um, you know, uh, you pick up injured people that had um, burns or spinal injuries. There's no burns or spinal board in Darwin, so we'd have to take them to the closest city, which which was Adelaide. Um, so we'd, oh, wow. we'd often fly them down to Adelaide. Um, so if you're coming from Bali, um, although Darwin might be the closest closest town, it's not necessarily um, the the best place to take them because they might not have the required facilities there. So we sort of um, and that wasn't up to us. We didn't make that call. The, the doctors and the medicals would, and it would be generally decided before you, you you pick your patient up where you where you're taking them. So, 
I was going to say it's a big flight to have to do if you had to work out that that's where you had to go just after you picked them up. Yeah, it's outside of my pay grade to, to work that stuff out. But they yeah. tell us where we're going and, <laughs> and we do the best we can to get them there. <laughs> totally. I asked Simon this actually. Was there like a lights and sirens sort of mode as well, particularly doing international <laughs> stuff where you had priority? Um clearances and stuff um in a way there was uh it didn't have uh, it didn't involve lights and sirens but we had a, a code um med one we were called so if it was life threatening you could be med one and you'd get priority um uh that, that goes for every uh anyone flying around really if you have someone on board that requires immediate assistance um you know you can upgrade your status to med one or make a band call or something and you get priority um which we did use med one status a bit when we had when it was critical and it does work you get direct tracking wherever you wherever you go everyone gets out of your way and yeah it's pretty good <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> be nice to use them on a friday afternoon on the sydney melbourne run when you just want to get home or something but yeah exactly fortunately it's not available for uh get home artists <laughs> yeah well um yeah from there you moved on to virgin and did you go straight to the 737 oh. i did yeah so um yeah, at the time there there were vacancies on the seven three and the Embraer. Um, so I remember when I got a phone call, um, I was interviewing for both, and they didn't tell me. I forgot to ask. They didn't tell me which one. I got to, to ring the back and find out what aircraft type <laughs> I was I was going to. Um, but yeah, it was a seven three. So I've, I've been on that the whole time. Uh, yeah, that's cool. Surprisingly, I haven't had that many airline pilots on the show which is funny because you know a lot of people particularly people not in aviation would be like well surely the entire show is just airline pilots because no one ever thinks of ga pilots and all this other stuff so yeah um well yeah what's it like you know as an airline pilot what's what's the life look like um it you can sort of go down a few different paths um with the airlines you can do long haul or and international and which I haven't done and or you can choose sort of short haul domestic but even within that um, the short haul domestic um, operation that I'm in you can still uh, adjust your um, roster um, within the parameters of the bidding system so you can if you want to be away more you can you can bid for trips you can go away for three or four days at a time and then come home um, and have a few days off or if you want to be home every night um, that option is available to bid for day trips. You're still going to get given um, trips away, but um, generally speaking, you can sort of try and play around with it um, with the bidding system to, to suit your needs. Um, I'm a little bit different in my situation because I live in Hobart and there's no Hobart base for Virgin. So mm. I have to commute to um, my base, which is Sydney, um, to start work. And that's up to me to get myself up there and... Um, and get to work on time. Yeah, I've heard that from a few pilots where um, just listening to pilot stories and stuff on other podcasts. Even um, I was reading Captain Sully's book and he was living in in California somewhere and I think he had to get himself across the country and they were closing hubs and yeah. so he's getting further and further away. They're having to travel to, you know, go to yeah. work. So Yeah, that's right. I mean, that, and that's, that's our own decision to do that. I mean, the easiest thing would be to just pack up and, and live in Sydney, but that's not going to work for my, myself and my family. So we've decided to live here and, um, and just, yeah, commute, commute to Sydney. So generally that means going up the night before your duty starts, if you start early or, um, often coming home the next day as well. So, um, 
sometimes if you're lucky, your flight will get back in time to catch the, the connecting flight to Hobart, or or you better get up there in time to do your do your flight that afternoon. But it is a bit of a risk that you your flight gets cancelled or or delayed, and and that's a, that's a problem. So yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, you you're like, well, to... that other flight's going to be probably cancelled <laughs> and delayed too. <laughs> yeah, so you you want to give yourself a couple of options, really. Whether that's yeah, cool. a second flight on your airline or or a backup plan with with an alternative airline, do you have to fly Virgin? No, no, that's the thing. Like you could fly, <laughs> you could fly Qantas or Jetstar if you had to. Like if I, yeah, if our flight got cancelled and there was a Jetstar flight half an hour later, I'd definitely you'd have no problem, you know, booking last minute on that sector and and getting on board that one. Just so you make sure you get to work, you know. There you go. And is it that kind of thing where they remunerate you for the for the journeys, or is it like no, they're that, like you're on your own? And you chose to live in Hobart. That's exactly how it is. You're on your own, so <laughs> it's up to you. I mean, we do get staff travel, which is which is great. Um, that's cool. So it's not very. I mean, the, the most expensive part of the day is getting a taxi um, from from home to the airport or or the other end. So it's you know the, the staff travel sort of um, is is good, but it, I mean it adds up over over a year of of traveling up and back um it is significant but you know that that's it's doable and that's what we choose to do so uh, i'm not complaining about it <laughs> mm. do you get points no unfortunately no <laughs> um <laughs> yeah damn so yeah i wish we did i'd have a lot of points if we did that <laughs> yeah i thought so <laughs> not in 2020 though <laughs> no <laughs> that's true mm. Cool. So, yeah, what did your roster look like um, heading into twenty twenty? Did I imagine it's, it was a really tough time for you know, airline pilots across the board? And um, yeah, you know, there was a lot of um, people getting put um, on standby and stuff, and not losing their jobs as well. Um, yeah, that's right. I, I suppose it started off. You know, you'd get um, a few days stood down, um, or L what we call it, leave without pay. Um, and you're flying gradually reduced, and then it got to a point where they just placed everyone on full time, leave that pay, and it was about that time that JobKeeper came in. So um, everyone got JobKeeper, and then um, people got called up to go to go and fly. But obviously, I was in Hobart and couldn't travel without um, isolating when I got home, or you know, doing the two week, fourteen day thing. So yeah, um, you could nominate to go to work. You could elect to to um to go to work or if you didn't want to you, you, it wasn't a requirement so I, obviously i chose not to because i didn't want to go away and then have to come back and isolate so from march i think the 28th i haven't flown at all the 73 so i've been off the whole time um some guys flew the whole way through they were living in the city they were based in and they chose to go to work um and yeah, others decided to go and do something else for you. You treat it as a career break, um, time of family, um, you know, doing something different for a while. So I was lucky to be on the 7-3 um, because that fleet um, survived. They didn't They didn't get rid of that fleet. Um, some other guys, some, lots of my friends are on other, other aircraft types that they, they did get rid of. So they did unfortunately lose their jobs. So... It was a pretty horrible time to see your, your mates go through that, um, you know, and it's pretty close to home, I suppose, to, to see an airline um, that we thought was quite strong and it's going pretty well all of a sudden um, in turmoil. Uh, so it wasn't, it wasn't a happy time at all, but 
anyway, it looks like um, I'm lucky to still have a job now. So uh, it's 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 building uh, the flying's building, and um, provided we keep these outbreaks under control, I think it'll stay about where it is until it until it builds eventually back to where it was in a few years, hopefully. Totally, yeah. Um, domestic looks like it. Yeah, it's getting stronger and stronger as we you know go into 2021. Particularly now that yeah, contact tracing and everything looks like we're sort of way more in control of that kind of stuff. And yeah, it's just waiting for the international stuff, which yeah, everyone's going to be dying to go overseas. Oh, so yeah. It's going to be a huge, huge comeback. I know, and vice versa. Just whenever that will be. Yeah, people are going to be dying to come here. You know, from from overseas. So I think it's going to be a when they do open it, there's going to be a mass exodus of Australians going overseas and international travellers coming here. So. Totally. Um, yeah, I think that won't happen though. I mean, I don't know. Who knows when it'll happen? But I'd say domestic will ramp up a lot quicker than than the international. Mm, I think so. Yeah, it'll be a time in the future, and it'll be yeah. fun. So can't yeah. wait. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, they're gonna have to pull all the dust covers off all the A three eighties and stuff that are still around. Oh, that yeah, haven't been retired yet. And oh, the cost as well. So it's just mind boggling how. How uh, how they're going to turn those machines around and get them mm. prepared back, ready for flight, and such a such a mission. Totally, yeah. They've been sitting there for a long time, and you know the maintenance and everything. Uh, yeah. Have to go over everything with a fine tooth comb, I reckon. So. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So, when did you decide to start flying seaplanes? Um, I think I had a friend in Sydney who had a boat, and we used to go out in the harbour all the time, and in Rose Bay, see these these beavers come and go all, all day long and I just, yeah, kept, kept staring at them and just loved the sound of them and just thought they were an amazing machine and ended, ended up um, chatting to one of the pilots um, on, on a dock, um, just sort of walked up and had a chat with him and thought, oh, you know, I'd, I'd love to do this. And he said, oh, I can do, I can do your, your rating in, in the beaver if you, if you want to. And, um, and so it's sort of like, oh, yeah, it's pretty cool and I'd like to do that one day. And then um but i thought oh well would i ever use it you know probably not um so sort of didn't really um think too much more of it for about i don't know six months six to 12 months and then got the idea that tassie had a seaplane business a, a couple of years prior to that or yeah maybe three years prior to that and um it, it doesn't have one now so um had a bit of a dinner table discussion with my father and we both decided that that would be a good idea. <laughs> and the first, um, you know, we did some basic numbers and ran a small business plan and thought that we could make it work. And so the first um, step would be to go and get a seaplane rating and just see if I could, you know, see what I thought of it. So then I went back to this guy and said, yeah, I'm, I'm ready. You're on. Let's, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, that's great. That's Steve Steve Krug from uh, Sydney Seawing Airways, and he's probably arguably the most experienced um, beaver pilot in the country. I think he's got over twenty five thousand hours in in a beaver. Yeah, it's cr- crazy crazy numbers. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, even having twenty five thousand hours in general is just like an insane <laughs> effort. So. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> just in the yeah. beaver's pretty amazing. Yeah, that's right. Wow. So. What was it like uh, learning in the beaver? Oh, it was awesome. I mean, I'd I'd never been in a seaplane before, so uh, it was my first my first um, first time in you know flying off the water. So it was 
even that alone was was pretty cool. But then you look back on it now to think that it was in a in a beaver, the most iconic seaplane there is. It was yeah, it was pretty pretty amazing. I suppose it was really a really interesting learning curve. It was um, very different. Uh, I've you know I love boats and I've been on boats a bit so um, and I love flying obviously so it was basically combining the two passions there so I thought it was great <laughs> yeah I can imagine and I imagine it was, you know being an older plane it would have been interesting to learn on and was that a bit of a learning curve yeah it it was um, I mean it's in great condition and most beavers are um, they keep getting getting rebuilt and really well looked after um, so although it was old it was in in great condition um, such a uh, people call it a complex seaplane but it's, it's not really at all I think it's quite a, a simple one it's um, the amphibs make it a little bit more com- complex um, but it's just a, a, a plane with retracts really and it's once you get your head around the, the radial and how to start it and uh, how to take care of it and look after it um, it's it's a great machine it really really is They've got some uh, with like turbine engines or something now, don't they? They do, yeah. Just, yeah. They they started putting turbines in them at the factory um, later on in their in their life, but a lot of them have been re-engined and had the conversion done. So, oh, right. um, yeah, that's there's two ways you can buy them out of the factory. Um, they only made a didn't only a handful, and then, um, but yeah, a few of them have been been remodeled or yeah, put the, the turbine engine in them. Pretty cool. Very cool. So we've got a shared, uh, semi-shared experience now because the first time I ever was in the seaplane was with you over Christmas. <laughs> yeah, right. In the Beaver. <laughs> in the Beaver, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, that was a, was a great day. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, we have to share now with the audience who don't know our in joke or <laughs> in story, in anecdote. <laughs> Um, that yeah, I was down in Tassie over Christmas, and um, Henry took me for a trip in the Beaver. After me saying I've never been in a seaplane as well, and uh, yeah, it was it was pretty amazing, and it was a beautiful day. Like, yeah, it was. how good was that morning? That was perfect. Yeah, those, those mornings, and yeah, this very very uh, light breeze, sun's out. It's uh, doesn't get any better than that. Yeah. And um, because yours is on amphibious floats, yep, you have it hangered at Cambridge Airport. That's right. Yep, yeah. So we fly it over most mornings. The reason being, it gets it out of the salt water. We can give it a good hose down, a good wash, good clean, um, and then um, yeah, park it on the in its parking spot, tight down, and it's it's safe and sound. And then um, ready to go back over the um, back over to Hobart Hobart City or Hobart Waterfront the next day for. The more jobs it was really funny actually um when i first saw it being on the land and how tall it was because yeah. of the floats and then the wheels and everything so yeah it stands up really tall it towers over sort of most other single engine airplanes and yeah you gotta sort of climb up into it and i think it's actually it's not much lower than the 737 cockpit it's probably only about a meter lower really um, yeah it's it's crazy the 73 sits sits pretty low the airbus 320s uh quite a lot higher <laughs> Um, really? The, yeah, I never yeah, noticed that. Just the gear yeah. systems in the 73. Um, that's why if you look at the engine nacelles, they've got like rounded off at the bottom there. Yeah, the asymmetrical sort of. Mm, yeah, they're a bit. Yeah. But if you look at an Airbus, they're, they're symmetrical. So um, they mount the gearbox on the um, 
7.3 engines on the side to allow that to happen because the gear legs are shorter, so the engines are closer to the ground. So. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, but yeah, the um, <laughs> the landing on the water have and particularly having taken off from the land. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you sort of expect to land on the land again, and so landing on the water was yeah pretty wild. Like looking out the front, and you, all you see is water, and it's getting closer. Yeah, yeah, it's probably <laughs> something you're not not used to. It's uh, and especially if you if like you say you've only I mean, it was only a short flight. It was only not even ten minutes, and you sort of taking mm. off from a runway at an airport with a control tower, and then you. Landing in the middle of the river, down in in a, in a city, a capital city, it's uh, pretty surreal sometimes. Totally, yeah. Mm. I found um, how soft the landing was. Yeah, it's really surprising too. Yeah, I mean, it, you get rough days where there's a bit of a sea breeze picks up and there's a bit of wind chop on the water, and it's that becomes a little bit bit bumpy. But on the conditions uh, we had, it was yeah, just about perfect. So um, yeah, and the other thing is you got to very long runway there so you've got plenty of time to to touch down and you know it's you're not landing on a particular area you sort of uh or a set out runway as such you don't have a touchdown point um i mean you do because you make one but that can be anywhere so you just pick a nice smooth bit of water and say oh well, that's where i'm going to land and and land there so that's the beauty about seaplanes and do you visualize that sort of pinpointed sort of part on the water when you're landing you're like oh that's pretty much the spot like where you imagine say the piano keys when you're landing on the runway or yes sometimes but then again sometimes that changes a boat might um, make some wake or something and you say i'll add a little bit of power and and fly past those those wash those you know wake or um you might might think that um there's a change in the wind or something and you might want to adjust your your heading a little bit so i'd say yeah you do sort of set up those piano keys in your in your mind at some point but they often change, so you've got to be prepared to move those piano keys around um, to a better place if you need to. And that's the beauty about having such a big runway now, landing on the water. You can sort of adjust them to wherever you need to to make it make it smoother or nicer or safer or whatever you need to do. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it's good fun. It's it's great flight flying. It's it's a whole different world. Yeah, you know, back in the day, the old clippers and stuff they used to use those, and even like the um. The Catalinas, uh, you know, those kind of planes, there just weren't runways where they wanted to go and do the sort of routes and stuff. Yeah. And you can really see that, you know, the advantage of that when you actually go in a seaplane, you're like, yeah, we can land anywhere, really. Yeah. And you can get out and, you know, it's safe, obviously. But Yeah, find a spot on the land to, yeah, to, to disembark, you can land anywhere, yeah. Very, very cool. Yeah, it's really cool. Especially with the Amphib as well, you know, it's really versatile. You can take off from a major airport somewhere and, go out into the wilderness in in one hop maybe some listeners may not know so the amphib as well you need to retract the gear and ensure the gears up and down depending on whether you're landing on the water or the land it's not like they're always engaged that's right yeah so it's not a it's not a fixed undercarriage it retracts with hydraulics um and um you gotta be very careful what configuration your gear is in depending on the surface you're landing on so Obviously, if you're landing on the water, you want to have the gear up. Um, otherwise, it creates drag and it doesn't end well at all. Ask Dan Bolton, who is passionate about um, about this topic. He he um, he does some great work uh, on on gear gear down water landings. Um, but it is a a mistake that anyone can make, and it's also a mistake that's easily avoided. So. Um, 
it's uh, yeah very crucial not to land on the water with the, the gear down um, and also crucial not to land on the land with the gear up but you do much more damage landing on the water with the gear down yeah the aircraft will inevitably flip over so you, it's a real uh, a real gotcha you have to be very very careful with that one yeah, we had a bit of a chat on episode two about it, and um, Dan's also got a great episode dedicated to gear down water landing. Yeah, he does. Um, yep. Which everyone should check out. He often talks about having a set system and essentially multiple checklists and different, you know, fail safe parameters that you have to sort of uh, go through and adhere to or put in place um, to ensure that doesn't happen. Um, what are some systems and procedures you use and would suggest people do to keep themselves safe? Uh, we have. A checklist system um so we use use a checklist but we uh i check that three times before i land um three different opportunities um and all triggered by something in flight that that prompts you to do that checklist um and the other thing i do it's not um personally i do this and steve taught me to do this is um you say a little saying so um this is a water landing gear is up for a water landing and then you check it. So you check your indicators, gear is selected up, gear is indicating up and then we've got a mirror. So we check the mirror. Uh, another thing I adopted and additionally do I, is I, uh, I point, I put, subtly you can just rest your fingers on the dash and point what's out the window, water's out the window, gear is up for a water landing. So um, there's three three uh, separate times I, I do that check and um, you have to, by pointing it, it's a, it's a, it's an extra little uh, little trigger or a little thing that that uh, I find helpful because um, if you're pointing at it, you're going to recognise it or, or think about what you're pointing at um, rather than just doing yeah water landing gear up. Um, if you point to it and it's not water, uh, there's an issue. Or you point to it and it's and it's it's not land like you thought it was. You you know you you're going to notice it. So uh, that's a that's one technique. I mean, lots of people have lots of different idiosyncrasies that do it but the um, underlying foundation is um, do your checklist do your landing checks um, and how you do them and exactly when you do them may vary but as long as they're there and, and everyone's doing them um, it, it shouldn't happen but it does people, people get to do checklists so it does happen yeah yeah i seem to remember when we we're in the plane the indicators for gear up were also blue yeah so blue for water the other indication we have uh, on board is an oral indication. I don't know if you remember that one. Um, the it's a it's a system that is airspeed activated. So when you get to oh a certain, yeah the the voice yeah yeah the voice yeah for certain airspeed it, it tells you what configuration your gear is in. So there's a um, a woman that comes on and says gear is up for water landing, and then um, if you've got the gear down, uh, a bloke with a really deep voice comes on and says, gear's down for a runway landing. So you've oh, got right. not only are the words there, but they're also could sound completely different. So um, yeah, wow. th- that's the way, um, that's a um, system that the designers, um, you know, that's their, their interpretation of, of a, a, a safety buffer, I suppose. And um, yeah, so I, I think it's definitely definitely works and it's handy to have so yeah totally you only heard the female voice because of the water yeah that's right (laughs) you definitely don't want to be landing and then hear the gears down for you know no no that's right okay sounds like this typical canadian guy you know (laughs) it's it's pretty pretty funny yeah but yeah there's uh so two distinct voices there to jog your memory or jog your 
think the thought process and make sure you've got the right configuration for the right surface. Yeah, awesome. Well, um, what do you have to study and learn to fly a seaplane? There's, um, listen, there's a few different books, like just general reading. Like there's a few authors that have made some great books. Um, there's, um, and then there's the, the aircraft systems. Obviously, you need to understand um, the aircraft systems um, that you're operating. So whatever machine you, you've, you're going to do your flight plane rating in, um, whether it be a Cessna, 185 or a 182 or whatever, a Piper Carb, you really want to um, brush up on those systems. So that's just like doing your endorsement on any aircraft. But if yeah. you've got all those systems squared away and you're comfortable um, with your knowledge on the aircraft before you you start on the water and you can concentrate more on actually physically flying the aircraft and the attitudes and how to land on the water. And it's also not just taxi, uh, not just landing and taking off on the water. Some of the harder parts of Float flying, uh, getting into a beach, getting out of a beach, getting into a dock, approaching a boat, um, picking up a mooring, all these sort of stuff that people often don't think about, um, which are a huge part of float flying. So there's heaps of books and heaps of literature to read out there. Um, there's great book, Flying a Float Plane, by uh, uh, Maram Fowler, I think his surname is. Um, that's a, that was a book that was recommended by Steve um, for me to read and it, it was really really good um, it, it tells you a lot or you know talks about a lot of different techniques and theories about how flights work and how water rudders work and all that sort of stuff so the more you can do um, reading wise and um, trying to gain an understanding of how wind affects um, weathercocks planes or boats and how um, you know how you're going to tackle the um, picking up a mooring in a on a gusty day, all these sort of things you read about in the book. And then when you go out to do them, um, you know, you take, your instructor takes you out and um, attempts all these little things. If you've already had an understanding and you've read about it, it, it becomes second nature very much more yeah. quickly than if if you haven't had any, put any thought into it and then all of a sudden you you don't understand what's happening and you've just wasted a, a lesson really. You've got to go and do it again. So. Totally, yeah. um, that's the sort of study you need to do. It's not so much. There's no exams as such. There's no, you know, it's not like doing an ATPL or a or an IFR um, test or anything thank like that. Yeah, thank goodness. <laughs> but I think there is a, a fair bit, a lot of study to 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 read um, before you go and do a flight plane rating, before you go and jump in the aeroplane anyway. How to land on the backside of a swell or whatever. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yep, well, across across the swells and. Hopefully you don't have to do that because, no. <laughs> yeah, it's not much fun. <laughs> I'm writing down the book and everything because I was just yeah. saying off air before we started, I was like, I totally, after the beaver flight, yeah, yeah, and talking about seaplanes, I definitely want to get my seaplane rating, so. Yeah, no, get uh, flying a flight plane, it's, it's a really good book. So tell us a bit about Above and Beyond. What kind of flights do you do and what plane do you operate? Uh, so Above and Beyond Tasmania is a, um, business we started here in 2018. Uh, we've got a Dahlon Beaver, and it's an amphibious machine um, operating out of out of Hobart. We keep it at Cambridge, and um, and then uh, the seaplane base is down on the waterfront uh, at Hobart City. There. Um, what do we do? We fly scenics. Um, we do um, experiences, uh, charters, corporate charters, um, transfers to resorts and boats, um, beach picnics. Uh, we do 
a whole bunch of stuff. Um, but most, uh, I suppose, the most popular ones the the scenic, the two two scenics we have on offer. Um, the city scenic, which is a thirty minute experience, and then the three capes, which is a, a ninety minute experience, which has an extra water landing as well. So it heads down to to Port Arthur, and um, yeah, lands on the water down there in front of the historic site and comes back by the capes. So both are um, great experiences. Um, one's a bit bit longer and or quite a lot longer and and with that extra water landing as well. So. Very cool. And it's such a beautiful part of the world, Tasmania. So if anyone hasn't been to Tasmania or has before, next time they go to Hobart, they should definitely do that. Yeah. And seeing it from the air is just spectacular. Certainly is, yeah. It's, um, uh, and it's such a Hobart's one of those cities that's really water uh, based around the water. So totally. perfect for seaplanes, you know, you can see a whole bunch of stuff from, from above the river. It feels kind of like Wellington or something to me, where it's kind of like on the edge of the earth. Yeah. <laughs> going to uh, fall off the edge or something. Yeah, lots of people say that, but um, Hobart and New Zealand are, are really quite similar. Um, or Tassie, Tassie in New Zealand, I think. Yeah, and I'd, yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that for sure. So what's your flying roster look like? Do you have any other pilots fly with you? Yeah, um, yeah, we do. Um, so I've got a, got a couple of guys. Um, we're In summer, we're seven days a week, so... Generally, we've got a full-time pilot um, doing um, five days and then uh, a casual guy doing two. Um, and then I'll fill in the gaps or do a little bit here and there. Um, sometimes the casual guy uh, disappears, and um, especially in the shoulder season. So generally, that's where I'll pick up the scraps, especially this year when I haven't been flying at, at Virgin. Um, I've been able to do a lot of a lot of beaver stuff, which has been great fun. Um, when I'm... Back at um, at Virgin, I don't do much um, seaplane stuff at all. So it's up to the guys down here to to, to keep uh, keep the prop spinning. So yeah, we're um, sort of over winter time. We're only operating uh, anywhere from two to four days a week, um, and then shoulder seasons generally pretty quickly. It turns into seven days. Yeah, I imagine uh, winter would be. A whole different thing. Yeah. It, yeah particularly it's, how cold it is in Tassie over winter. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. It's um, uh, one of those things that in in, ta- in winter, um, going back a, a long time, it used to be really, really quiet and, and dead and nothing much happened. But then um, Mona came along. I don't know if you've heard of Mona, the yeah. museum down here. Yeah, so they started a festival called Dark Mofo, which is a, a basically the whole festival um, the actual festival only goes from a week, but the whole month of June, um, it's around the winter solstice, but the whole month of June there's uh, festivals and activities and all kinds of stuff going on, and it really brings down a lot of people. So it sort of reignites Hobart over winter. Um, yeah. So since that's happened, it's really changed the, the vibe of Hobart over winter time and um, helped out small businesses like ours um, significantly in that the tourists are still around in wintertime as as well as summer, so that's a big boost for um, for us and all tourism operators. I think over the, the cold, long winters down here, to have that festival <laughs> in the middle of of winter um, really helps. Totally, yeah. I was there. I think I think it would be in twenty eighteen now because we yeah, had, or no, or twenty nineteen because we lost an entire year and I don't know what year it is now. <laughs> yeah, but, um, that's right. <laughs> I think it was twenty nineteen, and um, you're down for dark mofo and. Yeah, it's like peak tourist season there when yeah. you go down for that. It's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? People yeah. everywhere. Yeah. Mm. 
So it's yeah, good to hear how there's that flow on effect and yeah, right oh, totally, yeah. work, which is great. Yep, that's good. So what's your most enjoyable thing about the uh, above and beyond job? Um, getting out and seeing stuff that I saw when I in my early um, flying career, I suppose, when I first got my first job flying down the southwest and seeing all the mountains and the ranges and dealing with Tassie's weather and um, yeah, finding doing all that again is just um, yeah, it's great, great fun, great flying, um, and also um, showing people those experiences that I had and have now. Um, seeing their faces when you show them something like Federation Peak or um, landing down in the wilderness where there's absolutely nothing around and um, yeah, shutting down and having just hearing the tick of the engine and stepping out on the flights and realising there's really not much else around down here for a, a long, long way. So it's uh, going to these sort of places is something really unique and um, pretty impressive. So I I'm, I'm really enjoy doing that and taking people down there. It sounds fantastic. It's it's like going back to uh, the beginning. It's like a full circle. Yeah, oh, it is. Yeah, it's um, and I really enjoy that part of it too. It's sort of um, reliving it, <laughs> reliving an earlier part of my career, I suppose, in a in a different format. So. And I imagine you know flying a small single engine aircraft. It's like back to basics as well in that form as well. You know? Yeah, totally. The airline's really procedural, and um, you know uh, everything's sort of. Um, yeah, very procedural, I suppose, and um, not that we don't have procedures in the in the Beaver, but they're just um, it's very much look out the window and go over here and fly around there, and oh yeah, we might land there. And whereas in the seven three, it's you know your flight plan's loaded in the computer, and um, you might have to go around a thunderstorm or something here and there. But generally speaking, you you stay on the on the magenta line and away, and away you go and do do an instrument approach at the other end and. And uh, and go to the gate and do it all again. So it's uh, the variety and the um, yeah the the different things we do down here and flying the different weathers uh, the weather patterns and um, it's all very very different and um, yeah it's it's great it's a great uh, great variety to to fly the seven three one one day and then in the in the beaver the next it's uh, it, yeah I love doing that it's good very cool. So where do you get the beaver from? How do you find a beaver that you go, hey, that's the that's the beaver for the uh, for my company? We were looking for a long time for a, for for a beaver. Um, looked overseas in America. Um, obviously, I didn't go over to to see any, um, but looked at them online. Spoke to a lot of people over there. Um, looked at a couple in Australia as well, um, and then this one came up, and it was in Hamilton Island. And the cyclone came through and destroyed Hayman Island, so they had um, Hamilton Island there had an extra extra machine that they weren't using at the moment because Hayman Island was closed down. So yeah, they they put up for sale and um, went up to Mackay. I was in the hangar at Mackay doing a hundred hourly, and um, yeah, it was being rebuilt in two thousand and sixteen by Kenmore. Yeah, so it was just in immaculate condition. It was. Um, it really was um, very a very impressive machine, and um, yeah, we we decided to to buy that one, and I'm glad we did. It's been a great machine. I've been really happy with it. And were you wanting a Beaver the entire time, or were you sort of open to other aircraft? No, we were open to other aircraft. Um, I did look seriously at doing um, the operation with a two hundred six, um, but the 
after talking to a lot of guys that have operated beavers or aircraft, um, not only beavers but malls as well on the on the Derwent here, um, they strongly advised against uh, a two hundred six because of the rough water we get here, sea breeze, and you know you'd, you'd be stopping flying a lot earlier than we have to in the beaver because the beaver can handle a, a lot more chop. Um, it still does get cancelled. I mean, we still do have to stop at a certain point, but mm. it would just stop a lot earlier in, in another machine. Um, Is that because of the weight of the aircraft or? I think it's just, just the, yeah, the, the size of it um, and mm. the um, the structural integrity of the machine as well. Um, I mean, they were built from, from scratch to go on flights. Um, yeah. And skis and wheels, so that you know they're just really, really well designed machine. They um, they handle a whole um, diverse range of conditions really, really well. So, and the, and they're also the, the capacity. You know, you can probably only put three passengers in a two hundred six, maybe four light ones, but we've had um, seven passengers uh, in our machine. So it's you know revenues higher, um, even though your running costs are, are a bit higher too. Um, but you can, you know, you carry more, um, you know, you luggage capacity as well. You might be taking a family to a boat, you know, four passengers, and then all the gear. Whereas in the two hundred six, you you probably would be only be able to take the the four passengers and not not much of their gear. Yeah. Especially if that two hundred six was on amphibs, if the if the machine was on amphibs, it you know reduces the the carrying capacity significantly because of the increased weight. So. Um, that was another reason we really wanted an amphib down here so we could look after it better and, and have options to go to airports when the water was too rough as well. So, yeah, that's why we, we chose the beaver. And uh, Kenmore's based in Washington State or something? Yeah. They're sort of known for their doing those sort of uh, float plane overhauls and builds and stuff. Yeah, yep. and especially beavers. So um, mm. there's a saying, it's a Kenmore beaver. So if your machine's been... Um, rebuilt at Kenmore, it's, it's generally um, known as, as being really good, um, a good machine because they do such a good job. And they install all the sort of like hydraulics and stuff for the amphib and um, amphib floats and the um, systems for, you know, um, like the, your voice recording thing. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. The, the, yeah. Yeah, the enunciators for the, the voice enunciators. Yeah. yeah. So they, they do, um, they have a whole bunch of STCs as well that they own, um, which are. Um, they so things like the Baron style kit, for example, is a, a, a different shaped wing, um, or it's got a, a leading edge cuff on it. So um, they can make it better for the aircraft to get off the water faster. And um, wing fences. Yeah, I noticed wing fences on the um, Beaver too. Yeah, yeah. So um, they're they've got a, the license to put all all those sort of add-ons on, and um, they also they bolt special plates under the wing and um, beef up the brackets for the struts and the wing mounts and um, and the uh, sorry the float mounts and um, so they can give you what's called the upgrowth kit so you can carry more weight so um, with the amphib machine we have to have that um, upgrowth kit to to make it um, you know worthwhile having the amphib so that we can still carry a load um, without the upgrowth kit you you know, you're back to a sort of 206 kind of load with the increased cost yeah, of running a beaver. So, um, yeah. yeah, so it's it's pretty important to have that. So Kemble are able to put all those um, bits and pieces on, on your machine. And, yeah, so 
we were pretty lucky to to find one that had that come from their factory yeah very cool so what's it like operating the beaver in terms of maintenance and stuff i imagine it's a pretty old plane so finding parts and stuff would be and not being able to fly it over to kenmore all the time to yeah get stuff upgraded you know it is a hassle in um australia um in america it's so easy there's so many of them over there um and so many um shops that you know can do all the maintenance whereas um in australia tasmania especially um there's really you're really limited with um well maintenance shops to start with um full stop down here let alone maintenance shops that know how to look after a beaver so um yeah we've we've found a few that can do it and we've you know we, we use them we've even um flown it up to sydney when other guys can't help us out down here um they're too busy or you know we've got a there's going to be a bit of a wait and we've got work waiting for the machine so one year we, we flew it all the way to sydney and got got air ag to do do the 100 hourly up there um got a- <laughs> i was just thinking one of the things that when we took our flight i looked i was like looking outside and i'm like Hmm. And then I looked at the airspeed indicator, and I was like, "Wow, this is slow." Yeah, yeah. They're not they're <laughs> with the, the floats. Speed. I'm like, "How long would it take to fly to Sydney?" <laughs> yeah. It was five point seven hours to get to Sydney. Whoa! So it was a long, long, long way. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, it was, um, yeah. But I got a um, a dispensation from Casa to run over the hundred hours for the purpose oh, of flying right. it to a maintenance facility. So. <laughs> It was, um, yeah, it, it, it was, uh, it was a long way, <laughs> but I flew it all the way from Bakai as well. So I flew it all yeah, the way true. down the coast. Uh, and that was one of the, my most favorite flights I've ever done, actually flying all the way down the coast at 500 feet, the whole way down. It was, <laughs> it was great fun. Cool. Really cool trip that yeah. one. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, seems like a bit of work, but I think it definitely pays off because it's an amazing aircraft. Yeah, it is. It is a lot of work, and um, I think preventative maintenance is key as well. So you need to, you know, it's just the fact that it's washed every day. We grease it mm. uh, every day. We, um, you know, use inox. We use all these special products on it um, to to keep it in in good condition. And when the hundred hourly comes around, it pays off because you know there's less corrosion. There's less um, things wrong with it. Um, so if you use preventative maintenance to, to keep your aircraft in good condition, then, you know, when you come to the 100 hour, there's just, there's not as much to do. Still a lot, but not as much. I saw you putting the, um, wax on the, uh, propeller too. Yeah. The beeswax. <laughs> yeah. So we do, we do that. Um, the water, um, is like gravel when it, when the propeller's running up for takeoff and it's getting, you know, it's, it's spinning through spray. Um, so the little pellets of water, they will chip the, the propeller, um, mm, literally gouge out the, the, the metal. Um, so putting wax on um, helps. Uh, it's just like a little buffer between the, um, the water and the, and the metal. I mean, it only lasts a few rotations, but that's when, when the plane hasn't got any forward movement um, while it's, it's just the propeller spinning up and it's, you know, almost idle in the water, that's when the damage happens. Once it starts moving, most of the spray goes behind the, the propeller. So even though the the, the uh, wax will only stay on for a couple of seconds, that's enough to prevent a little bit of damage. I mean, it doesn't stop it, but it, it certainly helps. Mm, yeah, fascinating. So it's something, something you do before each flight, yeah. What are some of the challenges you face as both a seaplane pilot and also running and operating above and beyond Tasmania? 
Um, well, apart from all the maintenance, <laughs> there's not 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 enough hours in the day. Is probably my biggest problem. Yeah, right. Um, I, I mean, I'd love to be able to do all the flying, and um, but there's just not not enough time to. You know, you got to run the business. You, there's a lot of behind the scenes work. Um, plus, having a second job and a family, and you know all that sort of stuff. It it um, it just keeps me busy, I suppose. But so um, time management, I'd say, is probably the biggest challenge. Mm. Um, and of course, you know, you've got your duty time limits. Um, having another aviation job, you've got to understand the limitations there. Um, you can't just go and work another flying job in your days off because they're not counted as days off then. So you've got to be really careful managing duty time. Um, so, which is another reason I don't don't do much flying in the Beaver when when I'm at Virgin. So, um, but that's not to say I'm not not um, working on the business on overnights or you know, when I'm away. It's there's always something to do. So yeah, it keeps 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 me busy. Even just managing things like social media and you know. Yeah, I mean we've. Stuff I've got a. Time. That's exactly right. I've got a great team. Um, there's a very small team, um, but. Yeah, we've got a great, uh, great office manager, Bonnie. She she does a hell of a lot um, for the business. Uh, works very hard and and manages the social media accounts. Um, so, did you meet Bonnie when you came down? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so she's a uh, she works away and does a great job as well. And then um, we've got Dave West and Lee as the pilots. So you know they they're flat out. They're really good, uh, not only at flying but also at. at um, at maintaining the aircraft and looking after it out of the water and um, making sure it's good to go for the next guy the, the next day. I think it's good having a good team. Mm, very important. So are there certain skills and knowledge that you utilise flying the Beaver that you have brought over from your time as a 737 pilot? Um, I'd say checklists. Because, you know, they're so different. They're so, they're so different. <laughs> yeah, they are. They're so different, but they're still airplanes. They're both airplanes, uh, and I'd definitely say checklists, like just the way you do them, the f- the flows we do in the cockpit of the seven three. Um, you have your scans, if you like. People call them scans as well. Um, I've certainly brought that over personally, and I, it's something that I mean, probably uh, a lot of guys use um, rather than do a checklist as a a read and do. You sort of do everything in a checklist checklist um, by by memory or as part of a scan or a flow and then you pull the checklist out and read the checklist and make sure you've done your scan or flow correctly so um, I think that's a really good way to to run the flight deck or cockpit and um, so that's helped I suppose it's easy to over control a smaller plane so um, one thing I think I took the other way um, flying the Beaver back to the 7.3 was um, not over controlling it or you know realizing that how easy it is to over control uh, a small plane and then mm. taking that back to the 73 you really don't need to put as many control inputs in as as you might normally do um so trying to minimize that i suppose i took that back the other way so it goes both ways there you go and maybe you'll be ready for a sully water landing too <laughs> if that ever <laughs> I, in the unfortunate the, event the, <laughs> Only water landing I ever want to do is in a seaplane. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, well, I think everyone's uh, in agreement with you on that one. <laughs> yeah. 
So you're the first Tassie pilot on the podcast so far too. What and Tasmania is so beautiful. We had a bit of a talk about you know the landscape and everything, but what's it like flying around Tassie? We know there's the weather aspect too. So yeah, weather's a major consideration down here because it can be um, uh, great in Hobart, and then where you're going, your destination, um, it might be forty knot winds. Um, yeah, wow. Squalls of rain. But it's sunny and, and fine in Hobart and only an hour away. It's, um, we get these um, west to east frontal systems that come through and they'll hit the west coast first, which is where we go on a lot of our tours. And, um, and then a few hours later, they'll be at Hobart. And generally, you get the typical calm before the storm, so it's often really beautiful weather. And then you get the high cloud building up and the wind starts and, and then the, the frontal system comes through. And the other thing um, that limits us is the ranges. So we've got really high mountainous um, terrain to the west of us here behind Mount Wellington, you know, 5,000-foot mountains. Um, so we've got to get over them or through them um, to get to these places that we go to, a lot of these places that we go to. Um, so that uh, can be a challenge sometimes. Um, as beautiful as it is, it can be really, really rough uh, if it's windy around the hills. So, um, you know, that's, a, that's another, another challenge. Um, but, yeah, generally uh, over to the east coast, um, if it's the beauty about having um, this particular weather system is generally if it's really bad at one side of the state, it's okay at the other end. So, so we can always if someone's booked in a tour to go to the southwest and it's really bad weather down there, but it's really nice on the east coast. We might be able to say, well, well let's offer an alternative and and, and fly to Mariah Island or somewhere like that. So, that's kind of handy sometimes. Yeah, mm, very cool. Yeah, I imagine it would change depending on season as well. Like I think we've had a when I was down, it was really nice, no clouds, you know, sunny days, uh, really mm. calm, no winds and stuff. But I imagine it would change potentially. That was in summer. I imagine it would change in winter and stuff as well. Yeah, I mean, sometimes winter's the most amazing time to fly because it's really cold. And when, it, when you get a really crisp, clear, cold, still day, it's uh, it's beautiful. But um, you do get a, a few rainy days and, um, you know, a few savage frontal systems come through. But those days are a good hangar days to do some work on the machine rather than fly it so um yeah i mean it's it's one of those things you, you just pick pick your days um and have to be prepared to to reschedule people or you know give refunds if you have to um or give vouchers um but it's it's not that often we have to cancel generally we can either find an alternative route or an alternative day to take them flying um, so yeah, it's not, it's not, uh, it is, it is a bit, um, bit wild and rugged sometimes, but then again, you think of Canada and Alaska where, where these machines are, are more prominent and used way more than we use them down here and, and they get by. So it's not so bad. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you've had a, you know, we've talked about you having such a diverse and varied career so far. Is there another adventure or type of flying that you would like to do that you'd see yourself doing in the future, just to add to the oh, <laughs> crazy list so there's far. <laughs> lots of stuff I'd love to do, but uh, I think life's too short to do everything you want to do. But um, uh, at the moment, we've got um, down here in sort of the fire season, so we've got these um, fire bombers down here on floats, um, 
air tractor 802s i think they are they oh they just look like beasts so cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah we saw um, them taxing that we did um, yeah through cambridge yeah. we did yeah so i'd love to have a go at one of those one day but um you know you've got to have thousands of hours of ag ag time first which you don't have um so i don't know whether it will happen or not who knows um but yeah that, i'd love to have a, have a go at that that'd be great fun very cool yeah well yeah super low level and um dropping water and stuff it'd be pretty yeah fun. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah the unreal so uh, we come to the time of the podcast where I ask these questions that I ask everyone, yeah. which have become notorious, and uh, and this one in particular has become a bit of a two-parter, um, yeah. which is what has been your most memorable flight so far? So this could be either super nail-biting or just really enjoyable, um, or both. Uh, it'd probably have to be my first landing in the 737, actually. It's... Uh, it was um, into the Gold Coast. Um, oh, well, actually, no, rewind. It'd be the first solo. I think you'd never, ever forget your first solo. Um, but I think the first landing of the 7-3 was really memorable for me because uh, it was such a, a long road. And once you set your sights on getting into an airline, I suppose, it was when I felt like I'd, I'd achieved that goal. And um, mm. it, uh, yeah, it was, it was uh, surreal to, to land... Uh, the 737 at the Gold Coast for the first time. And the funny thing about the airline world is that you do all your training in the simulator. And um, the first time you actually get your hands on the real aeroplane, you've got, you know, 100 odd people sitting behind you. So you yeah. you, you don't get a practice <laughs> run. And a training captain, yeah, a, very, a very, very brave training captain sitting next to you, <laughs> guarding the yeah. controls and making sure you, you um, yeah, you don't do a, a too bad a job of getting it on the runway. So. That was uh, that's probably pretty memorable, and then of course, um, learning to fly the seaplane was one of the highlights I think of my career as well. So, so three you got three three answers to that question, Chris. But no nail biting one. No nail biters. Um, <laughs> I had a uh, an engine um, decide to stop uh, in a in a twin engine piston aircraft out of. Um, out of a small airport once it didn't quite stop but the turbo failed and blocked the intake and i lost most of the power out of it and had to have the full load on and turned around and landed that was probably the most nail-biting experience yeah, well. i've had but i mean it, it was over pretty quickly and it wasn't a big deal really i had a had a second engine and it performed as it as it should which was badly but it performed <laughs> enough to to get back to the back to the um or do a circuit basically and and land and um but yeah, no, was, uh, I wouldn't say I'm pretty lucky. Touchwood, I haven't had any two nail biting experiences. Yeah, but they're certainly the the three memorable ones, anyway. Yeah, this kind of turned into a two parter because of Deborah Laurie when she was yeah. on the show. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. was like um, she was. We could have almost had like a top 100 nail biting stories by Devil Murray <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> episode. So I feel like I want to ask her back to just. You should go that. back and do just that. Yeah, like a. Yeah, totally. <laughs> that might be a yeah one coming up in a few weeks or something. So I'll see, <laughs> see what she says. Sure. Cool. So what would your dream flight you could take just for fun be? Um, if I could do flight, uh, any. Um, well, in the airline world, Concorde, it'd have to be the Concorde. I'd love to find that. that. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool. Got to resuscitate that and get that back in the sky. Yeah, I think that would have been amazing. Um, 
in the seaplane world, um, I'd love to. I haven't done. I've only done one flight in a flying boat, which was um, with a guy, a local guy down here, Tony. He has a uh, Lake Buccaneer, and he took me for a fly on that. And really? That was oh, yeah, that's cool. Pretty cool. So I'd like to do a bit more flying boat stuff and like. Yeah. Is that at Cam- Cambridge? I yeah, the yellow one we saw. Seen that as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah, so you saw that. Um, but yeah, I haven't. That was the only bit of that I've done. So and We get to hit up Dan for the... Uh, the Mallard. Flight. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yep. If he's yeah. listening. Yeah, if you listen Actually, to we both need to do that. <laughs> now that I've got yeah. a taste of seaplanes now, I'm like... Actually, I messaged him. I texted him immediately after we landed. Oh, did like you? Yeah. I, like all got in the car. I was like... You have no idea what I just did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cool. So, yeah. No, I'd love to have a go on that. And he's like, see, now you know why it's good. Now you know, now you get it. And I'm like, yeah, I get it. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, awesome. Yeah. Well, Mallard's on the cards, I think, for me. So Totally. Yeah. Cool. For sure. Mm. Well, very cool. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show and thanks for sharing your amazing flying career so far and, you know, all the diverse stories and parts of aviation that you were involved in it's very cool no worries chris thanks for having me it's uh great to chat yeah and thanks heaps for the flight in the beaver too that's definitely a mega 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 highlight of my <laughs> flying life so i will always remember it and i think if anyone's down in tassie they should definitely come and you know check out above and beyond and go for some flights uh, and there's local Tasmanians that I know who live in Hobart and they're like, yeah, I've never done that. I'm like, why aren't you doing this? You should definitely go and do it. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, there's a beaver there on floats. It's sitting there waiting for you. So, <laughs> That's right. That's where we'll be. So, yeah, no, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. No worries. And, um, yeah, hopefully we'll see you in Tassie soon. And, uh, yeah, maybe go on another one. Absolutely. Let us know. Awesome. Thanks again. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for listening. It's great to be back. I hope you enjoyed the first episode of Season 2 with Henry Ellis. When you're in Hobart next, don't forget to get in touch with Henry and the crew at Above and Beyond Tasmania. I guarantee you'll absolutely love flying with them. You can check them out on their website, aboveandbeyond.flights. Stay tuned for some fun new content this season, and don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. The more reviews there are helps promote us on the platform and gets the word out there into the world. Also, don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle's Up and Away Cast. Thanks again, and see you next time.